0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome back in to Mining Stock Daily. This is our Friday morning long-form episode to get you into the last day of trading and through the weekend. Uh, pretty ugly week out there for, well, just about everything unless you're the dollar. Uh, yeah, the, the Fed speech on midweek had some implications for just about everything in the market. So we chat all things markets and the Fed with Jesse Felder this week from the Felder Report. Good to catch up with him. It had been a little bit of a, a long time since he's been on the pod. So we had a lot to chat about and you're going to get a lot of value of listening to kind of what's his thoughts are in this rotation away from equities into commodities and his thoughts on things like copper and gold. So it's about 45-50 minutes long. Great chat. A special thank you to Integra Resources, Western Copper and Gold, Rio2, and Arizona Sonoran for your continued support of the Mining Stock Daily Podcast. If you have any questions for me do feel free to shoot me an email Trevor at clearcreekdigital.com a little bit of a programming note next week I'll be in Vancouver for the AME BC Roundup Conference so there will not be a morning briefing uh, there will be no MSD extra Substack newsletter but I will be publishing a lot of interviews throughout the week uh, from my booth there at the conference so a lot coming into the podcast next week alright so let's jump into my chat with jesse uh this is the only interview of the week because it went so long so we're just going to keep it at that looking forward to getting on the plane seeing you all in vancouver it's first time in two years back in canada so excited all right everybody thanks so much have a great weekend here's jesse felder Good morning, everybody. Welcome into our Friday Morning Long Forum interview. We have a lot of information to cover for you today. Uh, One guest, hopefully we can take up as much of his time as possible. Uh, Welcoming back into the show from the Felder Report, Mr. Jesse Felder. Uh, Jesse, it has been quite some time since you've been on this podcast, so it's good to find you uh, uh, healthy and doing well. And you're not, I think you've parked the Airstream, so you're out of the camper they're back home for a little while, huh?
1: Yeah, we uh, we we did uh, kind of uh, put the the trip on pause back in I don't know end of August something like that, and uh, I've I've been missing it. It was so nice to be out on the road and go <laughs> visit people in person and and stuff. So I, yeah, I've been kind of jonesing to get back out there again. Yeah,
0: uh, funny story. I was actually on a ski lift a couple of weeks ago with a uh rv retailer out of central texas we just you know you start talking on the chairlift and he said that they have had to increase their prices three times in the last year already
1: you know that's not surprising at all I, I, yeah there's a couple stocks that i follow thor industries the maker of airstream um and a lot of other rvs and then also camping world is one i've i've been kind of casually watching for a little while but yeah, I mean it's amazing to see how much their sales went up. I think I was just looking at Thor yesterday. Their backlog in 2019 was like three billion dollars or something like that. They've got 18 billion dollars of backlog today. Just you know, it's unbelievable the demand, and it, the demand's not going away. So it's uh, yeah, it's been a popular thing. I think people are you know itching to get out there and get out of their homes and and have an adventure.
0: Uh, you know, that demand's pretty interesting, twofold. You have the demand from basically being kind of locked up from the pandemic. And one of the one things you could do is actually get outside. So we saw, you know, the outdoor industry is obviously like big demand push there because people just wanted to be outside instead of being locked in their home. But then you get this demand from the fiscal side and this money creation from the Fed. I mean, it was almost like a double whammy here.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the one part I think the Fed has been pretty disingenuous about is, you know, talking about, um, you know, most of the inflation coming from supply chain issues. Uh, I I don't think they've recognized the demand issues enough that when you when you print five trillion dollars and mail checks to people that you're going to create an amount of demand that you have never seen before. And uh, and that's what's going on. And so. The, the Fed likes to blame supply chain because they say that's out of our hands. Um, they have all the tools to address demand, uh, right? You raise interest rates and you're gonna, you're gonna put a, a damper on demand. Um, and so they, they just kind of been, I think, reluctant to recognize the demand side of the inflation problem because they don't want to be forced into doing, doing more than they're comfortable with in terms of rates and whatnot.
0: Uh, so we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the Fed meeting and the presser from Jerome Powell. Uh, speaking of demand, I was actually kind of taken back because some one of the reporters uh, on the call yesterday literally actually asked, do you think the Fed overdid it? And I thought, you know, this maybe that question was a year and a half too late. <laughs> yeah. But at least it was being asked. And, and I feel like a lot of that financial media is actually starting to See some of these questions percolate and in, and in, in putting Mr. Powell's feet, you know, to the fire here. But even despite it being a little bit later than it should have been asked.
1: Well, that's those are important questions to ask. I mean, I, I think people are now worried about a Fed mistake, right? About the Fed tightening into a slowdown, creating a recession. The Fed might have to create a recession in order to rein in inflation at this point. But it's funny that you know, with inflation at seven percent, nobody's talking about. There's already been a massive mistake made, right? The Fed's part of the dual mandate is stable prices, and obviously, they they that mandate side of the mandate went out the window in the last two years. When you, when the, you know, the balance sheet goes from four to nine trillion in less than two years, and inflation goes to seven percent. That's clearly a mistake, uh, and you know, that's I, I I don't think anything has changed there. That that clearly the, the they've been wanting to err on the side of rising inflation uh in protecting the other side of the dual mandate which is full employment and so it's it's very reminiscent of what we saw in the 1960s where um you know the, the fed was concerned with uh potential rise in unemployment and and failed to address rising inflationary impulses in the economy uh, in, in order to kind of err on the side of uh, supporting employment. Uh,
0: so there, there was a lot of information. Well, I mean, a lot of, it wasn't a lot of information, I guess, is there was no surprises yesterday from the Fed meeting. Um, maybe the surprise came from the reactions from uh, not only when the, the first notes were put out around lunchtime, but then the market really took a turn during the press conference, so we'll table the re, the market reaction here for a few minutes. And I, I do want to get just kind of your simple takeaways from what was relayed here. Uh, I have my thoughts, but I'd love to get yours first to see, like, if anything has actually changed, f- you know, from before yesterday.
1: I think the the main thing that's changed is for a long time now. I mean, I don't know, ten years or something. One of the Fed's most important policy tools has been the idea of the concept of forward guidance. Uh, You know, this started back with Bernanke at the time, you know, when they lowered interest rates to zero and they said, "Okay, we can't lower any further. How can we communicate our dovishness uh, without being able to do more? And the answer to that was we're going to tell the markets that rates will stay low for three years. Right. Uh, that, uh, you know, this kind of forward guidance will give people the confidence to say, okay, we can go do some, you know, do more loans and all these kinds of things because we know rates aren't going to go up. So forward guidance has been really important. And I think uh, that forward guidance, even through the rate hike cycle that Powell, um, you know, embarked on through 2018, was, was an important part of policy at that point. Where they said We're going to raise rates consistently, but gradually. Um, and letting the markets know that, yeah, this is, this is what's coming. And I think that the big change we saw yesterday was Powell wasn't really willing to commit to any forward guidance whatsoever, uh, besides the fact that we're probably going to get a rate hike, rate hike in March. But he wasn't willing to say that we're going to gradually rate, raise interest rates until we get to uh, a normal, until we normalize monetary policy. He wasn't willing to even commit to that and so, to me, that's very important that, uh, you know, famously, Jay Powell in 2018, late 2018 said, we're nowhere close to neutral on the Fed funds rate. And that was a forward guidance, basically, the market took to say, okay, we're at 2%, and two 2.5%, I can't remember exactly. But he's gonna to go to three, three and a half before he's done. So that was kind of a, a, a th- he's not even willing to say with 0% Fed funds rate today and 7% inflation that we're a long way from neutral. He's not even willing to say that today. So to me, that that removal of Ford guidance and the fact that you know he talked so much about being nimble, being humble, kind of being data dependent is a sign that they really do feel the need to address inflation at this point but they're not going to do so to the point where that it cracks the markets or creates a recession or that, that sort of thing, that we are going to stay open. So we are, we are on this hiking path, we're on this tightening path, but we're going to stay nimble so that if the economy starts to slow, if markets start to crack, we can, we're not going to lose face. We're not going to uh, hurt our credibility uh, if we change, change course uh, sometime over the next couple few months.
0: As I was listening to him speak yesterday, one of the things that really stuck out was obviously he was he was he pretty much put it out there that they they're going to raise rates and obviously the market reacted, actually pushing the expectations from what was a four you know raising rates four times and maybe even five this year that might seem a little much. However, one of the things that he mentioned that really caught my card is he I can't remember exactly what I said, but he made it sound like they're putting having an aggressive rate hike is on the table if they need to if they get data that says they need to do something fast and aggressive that they will be able and willing to do that and i thought that was a different tone
1: absolutely and i think that's that is what um you know the dollar and gold are reacting to today is that the the potential that we can see a rate hike for every meeting this year and i think that's that's uh you know i think the market basically had priced in the idea that we were going to get four rate hikes that there's going to be this gradual hiking cycle and because powell wasn't willing to commit to that there is a possibility they could even be more hawkish than that more aggressive than that And that would be, you know, a a rate hike at every meeting, potentially a 50 basis point rate hike. You know, if he's going to be nimble and data dependent, then uh, if inflation continues to come in really hot, you know, we could I think he wanted to leave the door open to these more aggressive type of measures.
0: Does it you feel strongly that they're willing to sacrifice the stock market here to tame inflation?
1: Absolutely not. I mean, I think, I think if this were Paul Volcker at the meeting yesterday, he would say something along the lines of, we are going to normalize monetary policy. We're going to do whatever it takes to rein in inflation. And no matter what happens to the markets, no matter what happens to the economy, we are going to normalize monetary policy. So, right, Powell is no Volcker, not even close, right? He basically, I think this, to me, what I took away from this data dependent, dependent, this nimble um, you know, he, he used the word nimble several times, was that as soon as the market hits their pain point, which, uh, you know, you can, we can guess about where that might be. Where, this, if the, As soon as the stock market hits their pain point, they're going to stop the rate hike cycle. As soon as we start seeing data that recession is a bigger risk than inflation, they're going to pause, and we're not going to see any more rate hikes. So I really take this as, uh, you know, uh, uh Really, you know, something that's continue. I mean, I guess reinforcing of, of my views, which I've had for several months now, which is the Fed is not willing to sacrifice the stock market, not willing to sacrifice the economy in, in fighting inflation. And so they're going to continue. Their bias hasn't changed. They're going to continue to put the full employment side of the mandate ahead of the stable prices side. And so then inflation's probably going to remain elevated and uh, they're going because they're going to lean dovish when it really comes down to it.
0: Uh, Jesse, I, I can't quite remember the exact number of unemployment now. I think it's around four percent, maybe south of that. But aren't we getting pretty dang close to that kind of full employment level? I mean, we're reaching levels to where we, all close to where we were before the pandemic.
1: Absolutely, and Powell said that yesterday. He said we are we have reached full employment. So you know, there was a great quote. I think it was Greg Ip in the Wall Street Journal today said we are at, you know, in terms of the economy, we had a huge GDP print today, um, although most of it was inventory building. Um, we had very strong um, GDP print and we're at full employment. Essentially, the economy is at a point to where the Fed should be ending its tightening cycle, not starting it right now. And so, I, you know, when everybody in all the financial media and the whole world says, you know, that the Fed is now behind the curve, uh, you know, I think that's what J.P. is trying to balance. Is we are so far behind the curve, but uh, you know, if we follow Mohammed El Arian's you know recommendation, which is end asset purchases today, raise rates fifty basis points or whatever, uh, take steps right now to normalize monetary policy, it will crack the stock market. We'll get a stock market crash. We'll get a recession. Um, and they're just not willing to do that either. So, you know, they are, everybody knows that the Fed is, is so far behind the curve now. I just think what's kind of spooked the markets is the idea that it could potentially be more hawkish than the uh, you know gradual approach everybody was hoping for.
0: Okay, uh, you mentioned the stock market, so let's uh, kind of transition into that discussion because it was an interesting reaction. Uh, yesterday, before the meeting, stocks were red. Uh, or excuse me, stocks were green, and then turned red as the press presser was continuing throughout the afternoon. We saw massive amounts of volatility throughout the week. Four percentage point moves uh, a couple days in a row on, on the big indices. Uh, there, I mean, volatility is abound. I mean, if you got to be very careful if you're trading these markets because they can make a pretty quick U-turn, uh, you know, abruptly. But stocks, I mean, some of these equities feel like they're they're getting pretty dang close to being oversold, and maybe want to find a short term bottom here. But uh, man, it, like, to me, to me, Jesse, it's you know that it that, that short the tech type of trade seems really overcrowded. But fundamentally, that's maybe where it should be.
1: Well, you know, as my friend Julian Brigden pointed out recently, that the Fed needs stock prices to fall in order to tighten financial conditions, right? So everybody expects the Fed to tighten to some some degree. Well, how do we gauge that? Well, we look at financial conditions. Financial conditions have tightened uh, so far over the last several weeks since the start of the year. The majority of that tightening in financial conditions has come from falling stock prices. Yesterday, so if you read Powell's uh, language in terms of where the markets are at and what they feel like they need to do, he was basically saying, yeah, that's a start, but we need stock prices to fall further to basically represent a greater tightening of financial conditions before they feel like they've done enough. And so to me, yeah, the, the, the stock market reaction yesterday was was actually an appropriate one, that prices, stock prices probably need to fall more uh, in order to for the Fed to feel like, okay, we've done enough. So, I mean, Jay Powell's walking a super tight, you know, tightrope right here, where he wants, he needs stock prices to come down to a degree to to, to make it look like to the world that they've tightened financial conditions but you do it too much uh if you end up killing animal spirits which i think is what kind of what we're seeing going on right now then it's going to be hard to prevent uh you know a major bear market which would uh almost always lead to recession right and so I think you know, they're, they're playing with fire uh, right now, and uh, it's, it's fascinating to, to watch unfold. But I do think, generally, Jay Powell said, you know, this decline in stocks, that's a start, but we need to, we need to go further before uh, the, you know, the world believes we've done enough to tighten financial conditions.
0: So, what do you think is driving this, uh, this shift, intraday shift? I mean, it seems like every morning, stocks are up, they're green, futures get bright. Um, but then throughout the day, sell off. So, you know, if, I mean, if you could put it on your crystal ball, where are these moves coming from?
1: Well, there's a really I mean, I think there's there's two things going on. Uh, I think one, you have retail investors who have been um, absolutely brainwashed to buy by the dip right, for years and years and years. Uh, You know, there was an interesting um, Q&A in the Wall Street Journal recently, or no, was actually the New York Times. Um, It was even more surprising to me where they were asking some, you know, strategist (laughs) how to, you know, how to handle the current environment. And he was saying, you know, you need to diversify, you need to make sure you don't have too much equity exposure, you know, kind of giving generally good advice. And all the questions related to that were, well, don't stocks always go up after they go down? I mean, they, you know, they always revert to a, a higher, you know, mean, an a ever rising uptrend. And to me, that was a terrific sentiment signal that, you know, everybody still believes we're in a buy the dip environment. And I just think we're not. So when you look at the, the, uh, the action in the markets, there's a really interesting indicator Um, called the smart money index or smart money indicator and it basically just takes the difference between the opening uh, of trading and the final half hour, the final hour of trading. And the theory behind this is, um, you know, retail investors are buying in the morning, they're excited, and uh, it's uh, institutional investors, the smart, so-called smart money, who are trading uh, at the end of the day. And so when the smart money index is declining, it's usually a bearish signal. And and we actually did see this, uh, you know, over the past three months or so where institutional investors or whatever the late day trading was more negative than early day trading and if that's been the pattern through this rally attempt then you might say hey you know that's the smart money index telling you that institutions are liquidating institutions are de-risking while retail investors are trying to buy the dip we are going to get to a point, I don't know if it's right now, but where, where the buy the dip, it becomes obvious to everybody that we're not in a buy the dip market anymore. And that's probably, I, you know, I would love to see the market rally S P up to 4,500, 4,525, something like that, to kind of give uh, investors the, the feeling that the buy the dip is still alive. Uh, because that would probably be a, a perfect kind of area for, to set the stage for a failed rally, that would really kind of break the buy the dip mindset uh, and, and a plunge. I think if we continue lower right here then we're probably going to kind of be more of kind of a mixed um, you know trading and environment for a timing. But you know like I said I would love to see a you know a week or two rally up to that 45, 25, 45, 30 level um, and 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 because I think that's really, you know, would embolden people that uh, to buy the dip is working and kind of reverse the the negative sentiment that we've seen. But generally I think that's what's going on. That's what's driving the market. Retail's trying to buy the dip and potentially institutions are in the process of de-risking.
0: I think it was uh Tommy Thornton, he tweeted out um but well, I don't I think it was a couple days ago. He tweeted out when things were really getting or it was a really ugly day he said. This is a bottom, but it's not the bottom. (laughs) Saying that he was kind of expecting something like what you said, maybe like there'd be an opportunity to where the S and P or the major markets would get another uplift, but then continue its crescendo down into whatever the bottom was going to be. So you have some similar expectations, or at least maybe a yearning for something to happen like that.
1: Yeah, I mean the market doesn't always give you what you want, but I would love to, you know, have another uh, a rally. It doesn't necessarily look like we, we may get one. But yeah, I mean that's how that's how uh, downtrends, especially bear markets, progress. Is you have, you know, the, the old Wall Street saying is that, you know the biggest rallies happen in, in bear markets. And so that can be a sign, you know, like the, the Mondays, Monday's trading was probably a good example. So uh, this huge candlestick, right, where prices gap down traded much lower uh and then rallied 200 points or something off the lows i mean that is typical and when you look at uh in, in, historically the times that we've seen a market down four percent and rally back to trade you know to to end in the green uh which it did on monday uh, almost all the precedents uh are it happened during bear markets so to me that's a very clear signal that the market environment has shifted. We're into something, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're into a sell the rally market and not a buy the dip market.
0: Um, how about the, the bond market reaction lately, not just from yesterday, uh, but really yields are continues to surge. I mean, I've watched in that two-year yield, I've never paid it so much attention to the two-year yield in my entire life. And this thing is just surging higher. What is it about this two-year yield that's so telling?
1: Well, it's basically, I think, you know, my friend Tom McClellan has pointed out, you know, we should just abolish the Federal Reserve and let the, you know, have the overnight rate, the Fed funds rate be set by the two year treasury market. Let the market set rates because the two year usually is a very good signal of when the Fed is behind the curve. So when two year goes up to, you know, whatever it is, one and a half percent, 2 percent tells you where Fed funds should be. Um, and conversely, when the 2 years, you know yields plunging, the Fed is not being dovish enough. And so I think that's one interesting reason to watch the two-year. But as Stan Druckenmiller told you know, CNBC this morning, if the Fed is truly getting out of uh, the Treasury market um, and they're going to taper to zero by the early March, as you know, J-PAL committed to that, um, then the Treasury market's going to start to tell us, you know, real signals. It's going to start, you can actually start relying on it again to, to give you information about, uh, you know, the economy and the, what we normally look to the bond market to tell us. I think the one thing that I've been kind of curious to see about interest rates, really since the Fed started to taper, is economic uh, fundamentals have, have been generally slowing, deteriorating. Um, and at the same time, we have seen rates going up. And to me, that tells me the bond market, not just the stock market, the stock market's going to test the Fed's resolve at addressing inflation, uh, but the bond market's going to do the same. So the Fed's going to taper to zero, they're going to start raising interest rates, and the, the bond market yields could potentially go up Uh, significantly without the Fed interference, basically as a signal to the Fed that, hey, treasury market can't function without you guys, right? When when you guys aren't buying a trillion dollars worth of treasuries every year, that lack of demand uh, becomes really problematic. And so I think that's one thing I'm, I'm watching, you know, five, tens and 30 year, you know, treasuries, because if rates continue to go up, even as the economy is slowing, That's a signal to me that the market uh, is potentially, you know, we saw it in late 2019, right, with the repo fiasco and the Fed had to come in and and calm the treasury markets down. They had to do the same thing during COVID. Uh, To me, I think we've had a lot of signs for the last few years that treasuries can't function without the Fed, that the debt markets have become too big and there's not enough natural demand for treasuries at, you know, (laughs) negative 5 percent, you know, real yields. So I, I think, you know, there is a risk of rates really kind of uh, taking off, even though the economy is slowing, kind of creating, a, you know, signaling a stagflationary environment. And so that, that would put the, pre- the Fed under a great deal of pressure. And I think at that point, we'd start hearing more about yield curve control again and, and something we haven't, we haven't heard much about in the last you know, few months or so.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you said that. I was going to ask you if yield curve control is still an idea that's on the table. And I also want to kind of go back and just, you know, it was interesting to see the movement in bond yields come in into fruition as the Fed, Fed was tapering its purchases. I mean, you could, I mean, it, it's very coincidental, It's not coincidental, but you could tell when they started purchasing less is when a lot of those yields really started moving higher. So
1: it's important to notice because uh, you know when the Fed really started QE and QE2 and QE3, 2010, 11, 12, uh, through that timeframe, every time a QE program expired or ended, you saw interest rates go down. Um, When the Fed stopped buying, essentially, interest rates went down. And that was the the bond market, I think, signaling, okay, when this monetary stimulus ends, that's a risk of an economic slowdown uh, when that monetary stimulus ends. And so every time, you know, QE was announced, actually rates would go up and say, OK, boom, that's a boost to the economy. Now, the, since 2019, we've seen the reverse, that when the Fed steps away from the Treasury markets, rates go up. And that's not an economic signal anymore, right? We're going to end monetary stimulus and so the economy will do well. No, to me, that's just a market signal. That uh, and it's important one. I mean, I think there was there was that demarcation point in 2019 where Treasury market started sending a, the very opposite signal. And to me, the way to read that is when the Treasury or I'm sorry, when the Fed steps away from the Treasury market, the market could potentially struggle and, and uh, we could see some volatility in rates and things. And so, um, you know, I, I, I do believe the Treasury market is going to test the Fed's resolve in terms of, uh, you know, stepping away and raising interest rates and all these things.
0: So on the backdrop of all this policy, we get numbers out today of the GDP, and it was really surging over six percent uh, uh through the year. Um an annual six point nine percent pace, which is pretty dang large here, Jesse. What what's the concern here? I mean, obviously it's on the back of a very you know, coming off pandemic and lockdowns and, and just literally grinding the economy to a halt, uh, so you would expect a big surge, a big surge in economic growth. But you know, what do we need to be weary of here?
1: I think you know uh, the, the the biggest takeaway for me from that report was yes, the headline number very strong. We haven't seen growth like that in in a very long time. Um, but the takeaway for me is uh, that the, the majority of it, I think something like three quarters of it, 75% of it, was inventory building. So, you know, that to me is a sign that, uh, you know, a lot of companies are just getting caught up. You know, as I mentioned, um, you know, Thor Industries, uh, maker of Airstreams and tons of other, you know, RVs, uh, you know, has it, their backlog has literally gone up five, six fold in the last couple of years. So, this inventory building is is a function um is is really kind of what's driving um you know the economy right now now that suggests that potentially we could see inventories rise to a point where uh you know they they overwhelm demand uh i don't know if that's necessarily the case i think probably the economy is going to remain strong i think when you look at consumer balance sheets uh they got so much money they paid down credit cards they paid off uh, so much debt that that left them in a position to where they can, they can continue to spend um, in, in ways you know in bigger ways than we've seen in you know prior to the pandemic so everybody thinks okay yeah well they got those checks and that's over well to the extent people took those checks and paid down debt that leaves them the ability to take on consumer debt uh, in the quarters to come so I, I think consumer balance sheets are just in great shape you know uh, and and that's that's a, a big part of what we're seeing is, is uh, I think, in the last few months, we've seen credit card spending pick up again, um, and default rates are like nothing on credit cards. So in terms of where we are in the credit cycle, we're probably still, you know, in good shape. And that typically leads, uh, you know, the economic cycle. I do think we are in a decelerating economy just because the fiscal s- stimulus is we- is wearing off. Um, but inflation is going to remain high, and so I'm, I think you know, that, that's probably the, the economic, economic environment we're looking at for, for 2022.
0: Transitioning here to commodities, uh, the commodities trade's been pretty heavy here. You know, it was mostly through 2021 and also continues to get a leg up here in the early stages of 2022. Uh, you know, if you just look at the oil price, it's continuing to rise, pushing. Uh, a lot of people think $90 a barrel is inevitable. Uh, we're not far from it. Uh, how do you, how do you feel? About, I, I mean, I, I've been reading your stuff about your thoughts on commodities for 2021 through 2021. Has it changed at all? I mean, do you? What are your thoughts here? Does this fis- these fiscal implications have anything uh, to the downside that they could do with commodities?
1: Well, I think if if we had a Paul Volcker in, you know, as chair of the Federal Reserve, then I think, you know, maybe you'd say, okay, they are going to break the back of inflation no matter what. And that means, you know, breaking commodity prices. Uh, I don't think we have, you know, I, I've even said Jay Powell is the uh, anti-Paul Volcker, right? I mean, but prior to this year, prior to the last 12 months, we, we we're hearing things from the Fed like, you know, inf- uh, low inflation, is the greatest problem of our time that they were talking about you know nobody believed they could even stoke inflation i mean it's it's hard to believe this that but like two years ago nobody believed the fed could ever bring inflation back from the dead right and so they they've done this now and we're we're still they're still in a mindset of uh you know bias full employment uh over uh you know stable prices um i think you know the J Powell gave us no indication to believe that that's changed. Um, if he if he had, they wouldn't have ended the forward guidance. Like I said, this become such an important tool for the last 10 years. Uh, so you know, commodity prices are probably, to me, just from a valuation standpoint too. You look at commodity valuations and just look at relative to financial assets. I think Paul Tudor Jones mentioned this a couple weeks ago that. Real assets are still so cheap relative to financial assets that biasing your portfolio towards commodities, towards these things, uh, is almost a no-brainer right now. I mean, I think, you know, I, I love the fact that so many people are saying, oh, you know what, it's commodities we run too too far too fast. That's what bull markets do. Uh, and they don't give you easy entries. Uh, bull markets will run away from you and view you know it's, it, with oil and energy I, i've been writing about it the last few months i think you know a few months ago i said oil prices are going to break out uh, above their downtrend line they they did that and i said look oil prices are going to uh you know continue to power higher and i hear from so many people saying you know hey look you know the oil price has gone up so much i, I think it's time you got to take off your energy stocks and you got to just you know wait for a pullback and the danger is, if you understand how bull markets work, is you'll never get a, 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 another entry that's uh, anywhere near where you sold from. Um, bull markets just don't allow you to uh, you know, buy high and sell low. If you sell out and you want to buy back in, you're probably going to have to do it at a higher price than where you sold at. It's just the nature of bull markets. So I think we're still in a bull market in commodities that's in early days. Um, and I think you know, same for precious metals. We're still in a in a bull market. This has been a, a you know about a year and a half long, almost two year long um, you know correction in in uh, precious metals. But uh, it's just that it's just a correction.
0: Yeah. Uh, before we move on to precious metals, I do want to get your thoughts about the the, the metals complex that's kind of part of the commodities trade here. Talking about base metals, the copper, zinc uh aluminum, you know, all those those things. Uh they they were surging. Uh there's a little bit of sell off here in the last couple of days. Uh you, you know, but uh from fundamentally smelters are can't get enough energy in Europe to get enough output. So zinc we've seen zinc prices, we've seen tin prices, um nickel prices are actually on the rise again. So how do you feel about these this base metal complex? It's, similar bullishness as you see in the energy market
1: well i, I really just look at copper because you know they, they call copper dr copper because he's got a phd in economics and to me that was so evident right I, I wrote a piece last spring almost a year ago saying that you know copper prices broke out of this long-term sideways uh you know uh, pendant pattern and that breakout was suggesting inflation is gonna take off. And that was, you know, March, April last year, something like that. So inflation, while the Fed was telling you for all of last year, inflation's transitory, inflation's gonna go away. Dr. Copper was saying, no, it's not. <laughs> You're wrong, no, it's not. And look who was right, right? I mean, all the PhDs of the Fed, they got hundreds of high paid, you know, PhDs of the Fed. All of those guys were wrong, Dr. Copper was right. And so I'm looking at Dr. Copper here, and you know, price went up to, you know, 480 something like that and we're back down to you know 440. but if if copper prices break out uh to new highs again uh then it's going to be really really clear that the fed has not done enough to rein in inflation so i think to me i'm watching dr copper just to, to as a, a you know a, a report card for for what the fed is doing and uh you know, if if Dr. copper p- copper prices start to break down, you know that might be a sign that the, the Fed is really starting to make a dent. But the fact that you know we saw copper, you know last May or whatever hit you know new highs and it's gone sideways for for essentially a year. Same thing in, in you know the gold price. Uh, even in a bull market, you'll see a uh, you know, corrective price pattern where you'll retrace a significant portion of the gains. The demand for copper is so high right now, it, didn't, it hasn't even really retraced. It's gone from you know, 2 bucks to almost 5 bucks, and it hasn't even broken down below 4 That's hardly any retracement of its bull market gains so far. So to me, that tells me there's just such strong demand for it that uh, the price isn't retracing at all. And it's it's probably just marking time before it breaks out higher again, uh, which will be another important inflation signal. But it will also, you know, be uh, an important signal for for the uh, you know, bull market and commodities. The strength in copper, the strength in oil, all just to me points to the fact that, uh, yeah, co- commodities are an early days bull market where you don't see much of a retracement, even when you do see a correction. And that's all healthy. Uh, have you taken
0: a look at the copper equities, uh, the miners, the developers, explorers at all? Obviously, the fundamentals are, you know we have a growing demand for copper in the in the in the in front of us with a depleting supply of coming online. Obviously, like maybe the better frame the question, what kind of are you looking for a technical uh, breakthrough in the copper price? that maybe would get you interested in the copper mining equities or the explorers at all jesse
1: no i you know i don't i'm more focused in the energy space in terms of the equities i think you know when when i look at um you know stocks in the energy space i still see consistent um insider buying um and you know i mean i I guess continental resources is, is the best example we maybe talked about it uh once in the past but Back in September, you know, through November of 2020, the stock traded down to 11, 12 bucks a share. Harold Hamm, you know, multi-billionaire owns most of the stock already. Said, "I'm buying stock in the open market, and I'm going to keep buying until the stock's not cheap anymore." And so he bought 100 million dollars or something like that of, of Continental, and he still was buying in, you know, uh, November, December. Um, I'm sorry, I think it was maybe October, November of last year. Stock's gone from 12 to 50, uh, and he's, he's still buying. You see this in a number of uh, energy stocks. And to me, and, and Continental, for example, trades four or five times enterprise value to EBITDA. So, this is just another example of investors betting against the bull market in oil prices, betting against the bull market in commodities. The only way that stock should trade four or five times um, enterprise value to EBITDA is if oil prices are going to come back down. If oil's going to go to ninety or hundred dollars a barrel, I think I think more and more Wall Street uh, houses are, are calling for hundred dollars a barrel. That might be way too conservative. Uh, you know, the supply and demand mismatch, uh, the potential for a supply and demand mismatch uh, over the next year or so is so big, we could see you know oil prices really scream higher. Uh, if they do, then there's no way these stocks are going to trade four times, um, you know, four times cash flow. It's just uh, ridiculous. They'll trade, you know, the multiple will have to go up and earnings are going to go up dramatically. Uh, and so I, I'm focused on the energy space mainly because I, I, I'm more familiar with the supply demand, um, you know, issues there. And I also love the, the insider buying, Not, you know, not a, a across the board uh, in that space. You see it in, you know, for a number of different companies. Uh, and then also the uh, you see it in the futures, commitment to traders, right? Uh, oil prices going up and you see in commercial hedgers actually reduce shorts. That that's to me a clear sign. They don't think oil prices are going down anytime soon, right? Uh, that speculators are, are willing to bet heavily on a reversal in the oil price, but commercials, the smart money, um, are, are not. So um, to me all those signs are, are bullish for, for that as a as a sector.
0: Uh, let's let's go and talk about the precious metals. Um, <sighs> Oh, I tell you what, it's been a hard couple of days for the for the gold bugs. But I will b- remind everybody once again that if you pull that monthly chart out on the gold price, it's still intact. It looks great. Uh, it's still flagging and squeezing. Uh, what are your thoughts here on precious metals? Never mind the day-to-day volatility we've seen this last week, but fundamentally, are you still as bullish gold as you have been in the last few months?
1: absolutely i mean gold price is back to where it was in early january or i mean earlier this month so it's kind of like <laughs> i mean it still hasn't even tested its january lows yet so to me this is just another higher low potentially um and we are in a we are in a buy the dip market in gold and i think if if, if traders want to buy the dip anywhere it's you know buy the dip in precious metals buy the dips in the mining stocks there too because the the, the, mi- the miners very much like oil Right. I mean, to me, I look at uh, Agnico Eagles, one, you know, that uh, maybe the highest quality gold miner on the planet buying Kirkland Lake, uh, you know, another very high quality um, mining company and the stock trades four times cash flow. Um, This is just another example of investors betting on lower gold prices. Right. The only way uh, you avoid that stock at four times cash flow is if gold price is going to go down, you know, two, three, four, 500 bucks an ounce. Uh, because if gold prices just stay where they are, the stock is, the stock is historically of the last 10 years traded 10 to 15 times cash flow, and it's trading four times today. So we could double and still be cheap relative to its trading range in the past decade. Now, if the gold prices continue higher, like I think they will, then those stocks are, I mean, ridiculously cheap today. Uh, what makes me think the gold price is going higher? A number of things. One, uh, the dollar's just been too strong. And it's actually been really impressive to see oil especially, but gold hold up so well, even in the face of dollar strength. But typically, when you see inflation take off like it has, it's bad for the currency. I mean, look at the relationship of the dollar to inflation. And uh, it's, it's pretty, pretty close relationship there. And so the dollar is held up in the face of rising inflation. I think this is currency investors essentially betting on transitory inflation now, so if, if inflation remains elevated, we'll, we could see uh, a move away from the dollar, see the dollar roll over, which would put a, a real strong tailwind back under the gold price. But also, you know, inflation and re- negative real interest rates are typically very bullish for gold prices. Back in um, you know summer of you know July August of 2020, when the gold price peaked. Uh, it got way ahead of where real interest rates said it should be, right? And so it was Mm -hmm. very, sentiment got, you know, over bullish. It was clearly a time to kind of say, okay, you know what? I need to reduce my overweight and precious metals here, kind of be a little more cautious. But today we're seeing just just the opposite, right? Sentiment has turned super negative against precious metals. And uh, gold is dramatically undervalued in terms of its fair value relative to real interest rates, I think, you know, the gold prices is, is, should be, uh, you know, way over 2,000 an ounce today, um, you know, potentially approaching 3,000 based on where real interest rates are. So this is this, you know, gold price is essentially another indicator to me, investors betting on inflation proving transitory or the Fed, you know, raising interest rates enough to, to bring it uh, under wraps. Uh, to the extent the Fed doesn't isn't able to address inflation or uh, you know real interest rates stay deeply negative, the gold price is you know just is like a beach ball underwater. I think you know as long as real interest rates stay this negative, uh, you know, at some point gold price is going to have to just really uh, have a real strong move higher.
0: Uh, technically speaking, have you seen anything similar to this in this gold correction to where? you know, the longer the correction without it breaking lower has an exponential move to the upside once it breaks out.
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's, that's probably true because I think, you know, the longer it goes, the more negative sentiment that you build up and more people give up on the idea that gold's in a bull market. And so people, you know, reduce positioning. And I think that's, that's exactly what we've seen over the last year, right? Last year, Uh, was risk-on for everything, uh, especially into the early part of last year. And so everybody thought, why do I need a safe haven, right? Why do I need to put money into gold when literally I can buy anything else? I can throw a dart at risk asset, you know, the risk asset matrix and buy, you know, cryptocurrencies. I can buy meme stocks. I can buy whatever I want, and I'm going to make a ton of money. Now that that environment is changing, I think we're going to see this shift back towards uh, back generating interest in a safe haven again. But to the extent that people, you know, uh, reduced their allocations to gold and have to have to put that back on. And I think we we, we're starting to see that before the past couple of days, starting to see some flows back into ETFs. Again, I think probably this is institutional investors who are de-risking out of equities, recommitting to precious metals. Um, And to the extent that that trend continues, yeah, gold could really take off. Uh, so, you know, I, I think it's a really interesting time for precious metals right now. Uh, and, and the technical action to me is, has really done nothing wrong.
0: Well, I guess that's the silver lining on a very, very red day <laughs> We've in a very red week we've had today, Jesse. Uh, I would, I, I you know, I, I would give you a little anecdotal story here. Uh, Tony Greer, who I, I know you, 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 know, he, uh, he put out in his newsletter, and I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this, that he tweeted out this idea that maybe he was perusing the gold market, and he got a thousand, more than 1,000 likes on this one tweet. And he said that was enough for him to realize timing wasn't right because sentiment wasn't low enough. Now, if he would have gotten very little likes, he would have been like, okay, maybe it is because there's not enough eyes on it.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's a great point. I think Twitter is that that's one of the most valuable uses of of Twitter. Um, And and even just putting any of your research out there is to see what you get back in terms of feedback. Because, uh, you know, one of my favorite things to hear is, wait, you're buying that? you got to be crazy. You know, like that usually when I hear that, that's when I want to buy tons more of something. When I put out an idea and everybody goes, oh, I love that. That, yeah that does make me cautious I do think though you know that you find there are pockets of people uh, on Twitter too you got to be careful you know like which which you know uh, pocket of people you're talking to because uh, you know there there are groups of people who are naturally very bullish on different things and you know if you're talking to the crypto people you're gonna hear a different different story when it comes to gold and, and whatnot so uh, yeah to me I think sentiment Uh, Has gotten very bearish, uh, and people are only—we're in the early stages of people starting to return to precious metals uh, as part of this kind of de-risking and return to a safe haven. Uh, You know, we're going to see corrective periods like this. This is what a market, you know, does—it tries to shake out the weak hands, and that's exactly what's going on. But when you look at the fact that we've been making higher lows consistently for months and months now. Um, That's a pattern that to me uh, gives me confidence in buying dips.
0: Uh, Jesse, I really appreciate all this time, lengthy conversation, but there was a ton to cover this week, so I'm glad we were able to schedule this and and get a lot of your thoughts here. Um, That is Jesse Felder from the Felder Report. You can go visit him at thefelderreport.com. He's got a newsletter. He's got a podcast. He's got a blog. He does it all. Uh, And uh, he's got an Airstream too, so. (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, alright everybody uh, that's a wrap here um, for Mining Stock Daily this week I'm going to be on the road in Vancouver to round up. that's the plan anyways as long as Canada lets me in so no morning briefing next week but we will be doing a ton of interviews from the conference throughout the week so I look forward to catching you uh, later while I'm in Vancouver, have a great weekend everybody and be well the information presented should not be considered investment advice